0: Thank you. There's a lot of um, different prayer needs that come in and out and of our church fellowship that um, sometimes we get a chance to highlight. Um, I know, Allie, we're, we're praying for you in... Your journey and uh, keep getting some cancer uh, news that we just want to keep you uh, lifted up. And so uh, praying that you get in at Moffitt. I know Iris is trying to help you with that. Um, I know, Heidi, again, your service for your brother-in-law is tomorrow at Idlewild. Um Viewing's at 10, the service is at 11, I believe, um, who suddenly passed away in his late 40s. Um, and so we're just... her Her sister... And her niece um, is just really wrecked, and so we're just lifting you up. Mitch Wester, his father, uh, Clint, is uh, in the hospital. Had a very critical stay where they're just doing some work. Um, A lot of you might remember Clint, as those of you who went to Idlewild. He is, I just had a... They, they did some experimental. The doctors got that desperate and said, we're going to do something we haven't done before. And so they started to see some bleeding. They just got a phone call just now that said they had a good night of rest, so we're just hoping it's inflammation. And these are names. These are faces to names that you see on our prayer email. that go out every Wednesday. So um, anyway, just always good to bring that up. And, you know, I, there's often times you get people that uh, get to visit, and we're just... Um, we're just grateful uh, to have people that are a service of the Lord. shook. I am I am I saying that Ashuk Asuk? shook. that's what I thought. And I started questioning myself. And Sheila, who just arrived from India two days ago, right? So this is Arun's brother. shook. would you mind coming up for a little bit and Telling us kind of just um, your ministry. Had a chance to be at an Indian Christian fellowship at a, oh, come on up here, at a, at a rune's house. And uh, you don't have to take your shoes off. I know a rune makes you do that at home, maybe. So, anyway, um, you know. Uh, it was just a real blessing to be able to hear you, you know, share the Word of God. And then and we, um, we delved into fellowship, and it f- uh, means food. You can imagine how happy I was last night. It was like one of those moments, Lord, you can take me, you know. I mean, it, it, it doesn't get any better than this. But just to watch the, the sweetness of the fellowship and your message was something I just thought about this morning And that. So maybe you just tell the
1: folks, you know, who you are and what you do over there in India. How's that? Well, um, I'm Arun's older brother. Come from India, as uh, Pastor Jake just mentioned. I came to know the Lord uh, when I was uh, 18 years old. I went to prison when I was 17. I used to do drugs and my life was a mess. I had a God-fearing mother who prayed me, uh, prayed for me and uh, she led me to the Lord. And uh, then the day I came to know the Lord, I told the Lord that I'll serve Him full time if He helps me get out of the mess that I got into. And God did. God did get me out and... um, Uh, There were three things that were told to me when uh, I went to prison. They told me, I'll never get to study again, I'll never get a job, I'll never get married. Um, But my mother believed that nothing is impossible with God, so she used to pray over me, pray with me, pray for me, and uh, it finally led me to the Lord. Then, you know, God did this miracle, He helped me study, He helped me get a job, my children are married. (laughs) There's just absolutely nothing that's impossible with God. Sheila and I now work with young people in India, 63% of India is young. So we work with the young people in India, we work with young professionals and also with uh, uh, married couples, you know, uh, doing marriage enrichment uh, seminars. Not only that, we also train uh, village pastors. We've got a couple who live in the village and then train these uh, pastors so that they're, they're theologically doing the right thing in these villages. So that's uh, something in terms of what we do. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. I was about to hand you the message in here. Preach it, brother. You, you, can, you can definitely bring it. So, hey, uh, I'm excited about... Um, open up this with you today. If you would, just go ahead and let's, uh, let's pray together and uh, we'll just move forward. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, that, um, Lord, you've given us the ability to, um, to just study your word, uh, to, um, Father, to open scripture in a way that, that, Lord, we hope is fresh on our ears. Open our eyes to see scripture we've never seen before. Father, more than that, would you open our ability to understand the power of Scripture and the application it has in our life right now? In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Okay, so First Samuel chapter 30. Again, I say it all the time. Got the best job in the world because I all I do here is I get to. Well, I do not say all I do in this one you know, these two services, but when I get to study for. This message—it's just God's already given me the message. He just doesn't "Preach my word." Just I've given you enough, you know. Um, I don't have to sit there and conjure up. well, What's this point going to be? And that guy, I, you guys allow me to walk verse by verse by verse by verse, and just to show you and just to showcase um, this beautiful scripture. So, where are we at? If, if you walk in, if where are we in the scripture? You walk in here and and think, um, David has been a man who's been pursued. By the king of Israel. David is going to be the next king of Israel. David is so desperate to leave the pursuit that he goes to the arch enemy of, called the Philistines. He goes to the Philistines and he asks to be able to be put into a place of position with which once his enemy. I mean, somebody once joked, just like being a, coming, going from a Dallas Cowboy fan to a Washington Redskins fan. I think it's even more than that. You know, it says uh, this is something of desperation. <clears throat> the Philistines take him in; he and his 600 men. They put them in an area of fighting. <clears throat> David makes raids on enemies of of the Jews, but he's lying. He's basically telling the king of the Philistines and the warlord that, "Oh, by the way, I've been." Um, I've been raiding against other people in Judah, other other Jews, and so the Philistine king loves David. I think David, you're you're incredible. You come over here, you fight against your own people, you bring me spoils of war, and then one day they're marching to arm. They're they're accumulating their armies. They're about to march into Israel, the Phil or the Judah the, against the Israelites. The the the. The Philistines have gathered all their armies. This is not just a campaign. This is not just a small battle. This is everyone. And that means David and his men are going to have to fight against their own people. David and his men are put in position directly behind the king as the bodyguard. David and his 600 men. When all of a sudden, the Philistine commanders say, What are we doing? Why why would you possibly put these men into battle when you know we're going to get into battle? They're going to turn on us. They're going to turn against us. They're going to fight for their own. And they're going to put knives on our backs. And so the Philistine commanders beg the king, Don't let David and his 600 men go into campaign with us. And so, David... To ask, to tell the king, what have I, what dishonor have I done? We don't know what discussions were going on. We don't know if da- what David was manipulating. We highly doubt that David would have ever fought against his people. He just wouldn't. But at this point, he says, you need to leave. David says, would you do one thing? Would you give me a place? Would you give me a place? Would you give me a city that we can call home? And he gives him this city, and it's called Ziklag. And... This is an obscure town. It's a town that, by the way, we mentioned three weeks ago. I'm not sure if you remember. We mentioned this three weeks ago. Then all of us the next day, folks. I could not have planned this. This is probably one of the coolest things I've I've seen. I mean, we even made mention some of these vill- these uh, these towns. These areas are not um they've not been discovered yet. Well. No kidding, the day after we mentioned this three weeks ago, there's a press release. And the press release um, went from everything from uh, the uh, Interior Department of the Nation of Israel to the University of Sydney to many archaeological areas. But here's one I'm just going to read from a secular organization. A somewhat obscure biblical city may have been found in Israel. Teams from the Israel Antiquities Authority, Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and University of Sydney say that a recent excavation has uncovered the city of Ziklag, which played a small but important role in the story of David. Archaeologists have been searching for the city for years. The site of the recent dig contains artifacts consistent with a Philistine civilization. Also evidence of the site suggests the city was destroyed by a large fire, which... Would be I get chills. Which would be consistent with the Bible saying that Ziklag was destroyed by the Amalekites. So, it, it, what, what timing did that it just happens to to roll in? When I look at at this area, of Ziklag, I don't want us to I don't want us to paint this picture in a way that's sterile. I want you to imagine this is more than coming home from Gatlinburg and we're driving home. And you know, the drive home always seems, what, longer than the way going up, right? Is that way for you guys too? Well, the ride to Ziklag home, 600 men thrilled. They're probably not trotting very fast. I mean, we're about to go home. What's the big rush? We've been at battle forever. And until King Saul dies, we're going to hold out in this place called Ziklag. And so the column of 600 men led by David is moving And I can't imagine the sight, I can't imagine the fear of the first time that someone catches a glimpse of smoke. When they look and begin to see, there's smoke. There's not another territory uh, that has a... In this territory, there's not another village, there's not another town. They would know this is Ziklag under fire. They speed up the column, and as they get closer and closer, the smell, the sight of a burning town... Wrecks their soul. But nothing prepares them for when they arrive. They arrive. The entire city is empty. There is not a sound. But the crackling of timber. There is nothing left. Of humanity or animal. There is not a sign. Of anyone alive. Now. Now. Let's pick up in 30 and start reading this through scripture. See what happens. Verse, 30, or, or verse 1, chapter 30 of 1 Samuel. <clears throat> now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against Nagab and again, also against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. But when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives... And their sons and their daughters taken captive. So think about this. This is a a site where they arrive and they're expecting everything. I mean, the Amalekites, just in case you want to know who are they, the only time they're ever mentioned are connected with the Philistines. A little back history. The Philistines came from the Aegean Sea. They were a seafaring people. They were pirates. The Philistines would go and raid different coastal communities and ships. As a matter of fact, the Philistines traveled so much, they were the only people in that area area to use iron when they would make, when they would make weapons. So they were they were very advanced when it came to warfare. And they stole this or took this idea from another from another nation that they had conquered. The Amalekites were very close and wherever somehow they followed the Philistines down. And again, the Philistines were they were so seafaring that their god was a fish. And then when they got to land, they said, we're going to be, well, we kind of like it here. We're going to lay up and just kind of stay here. They turned the image of their god from a fish to something weird. I was like a three-headed whatever, but it had feet or whatever. You know what I mean? It's really interesting to change image of a god. The Amalekites just went along with everything. The Amalekites were raiders, but they were the bottom dwellers of raiders. They would never fight openly in a field. These were people who would live in the hills, live in the mountains, and they would swarm down at night. They were bandits who were incredibly adept at slave trade. And so as they moved in, they would take over places where the men were all fighting. So Ziklag was open territory. So in case you're wondering, wait a minute, there's 600 men. Well, who are these families? you got to remember that even up till the Revolutionary War in America, whenever you cons- were conscripted, volunteered, served in an army, you took your family with you. So whenever we read of 600 men, there were 600 families more than likely. And so their families would come along. There were commercial traders who would come along. This is what, I mean, you would have all the good and the bad of all the trade that soldiers and sailors and things would want in, in military terms. These soldiers, these 600 men, have a home in Ziklag. That is where their wives, their family, this is where their, their children live. They have had children since they've been in the Philistine land. This is home. And so when you get there, there's no one left. What have they done? Well, first of all, you get a lot more money for someone as a slave than you do if they're dead. And so they took everything. The Amalekites simply took every person in that area. And you're saying, but wait a minute, they would take the feeble? They would. They would use that as ransom. They couldn't sell them as a slave, but they would hold them in a certain area and and gain money. And so they took them all. Verse 4, then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken captive. Ahenem of Jezreel, and Abigail the widow of Nabal of Carmel. So... He gets there, and again, when it says taken away, it, whenever you know you study for I'm not always saying break out every concordance when you study the Word of God. You can just open up the Word of God and read it and get a lot. You know, you get as much as you need. But when you do some word study, actually, when, when it says they were taken captive, they actually they're actually saying they were dragged away, they were herded away. So you can imagine this massive herd of humanity and animals and that being rushed out. Well, the 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 the. the David's men get there, and they are so distraught. They had no more strength to weep. They were screaming in agony. They were screaming in mourning. You have to remember, mourning in this culture was one that didn't hide anything. What's the first thing we do when we start choking up? Regain my composure. Get, Get myself together. In this culture, you would hire mourners paid more people that would mourn and this tradition by the way even seeped into america till 19th century and it was done because not because you didn't cry, want to cry. It's because you had no strength left to cry. And the dead were worthy of wailing and weeping. Which is why when, Christ, when the Bible says, through Jesus and through others, it says that we weep differently than the world. It had a very strong connection to things like this. These men were tearing their clothes. They were screaming. They were wondering, why has this happened? How could this, been, how could this have been, uh, been allowed? And then verse 6. It gets even incredibly more interesting. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself, and the Lord is God. Now let's break down this verse. There's a lot in here. And David was greatly distressed. Why? Well, number one, his two wives are gone. He is missing um, all his belongings, everything that was of importance to him, outside of family. And then What happens? the people spoke of stoning him. Whenever you do the research of David in scripture, does that ever come to your mind? I mean, he's pursued by Saul, pursued by Saul. But his people wanted to kill him. His own people wanted to kill him. Do you mean to tell me the 600 men who left everything that they had, they left all that they knew, they fought valiantly all the way, and now they're going to want to turn on him and kill their leader. This is what happens when desperation. This is what happens when mob mentality rules. You always wonder when you watch the news and you see people wrecking and burning their own neighborhoods when they're upset about something. And you know, what's the first reaction? What are you doing? What are you doing? Why are you destroying what you have? When you are so wrecked as these individuals are, their whole goal is to to, to what? Hurt someone else. Blame someone else. David does something that indicates why he is why he is continually loved and chased by God. You ready for this? David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. This is a man who immediately knows what obedience means at the very moment and to say, "Lord, I'm going to be yours." If you're looking for continual line and plane of obedience of David, you're not going to find it. And I guarantee you, if I look at your life, I don't want to say I, I have no power to do that, but even if I did, I couldn't look past mine. If you were to look at your life, would you see a continual plane of obedience that was of equal paramount? No, there would be times you strayed, times you were tempted, times you failed, but David did something that Saul didn't do. Saul would go to God as that desperate bellhop. God, you've got to fix this. God, you got to fix this. David strengthened himself in the Lord. He said, God, you know I can't do this myself. God, you know I need you. God, you know that I've got people wanting to kill me. You know, it's interesting. 20 years ago when I went to ministry, I think I really did it because of my love for people. And I was able to be a part of y'all here when we started our church you know as Creekside and coming on and just and looking around I really I came here differently I came here through a lot of counsel and I came here to minister because of my love for God it's a lot healthier you're in a lot better spot than if you had me about four years ago three years ago because I'm walking in here thinking as much as I love you as much as I care for you can you imagine if you became my functional savior, and then you end up getting only fleshly abilities of pastors, our creativity, what we can what we can offer you? I can There's not much for me to give, but what God can give, what God can do, for me to say, God, would you allow me to be a conduit? Now, even in so, let's say, take my personal walk. Let's say I'm planning, and then all of a sudden I drop. Here's what men do when we spiritually start to fall into a dark place. You ready for this? We tend to want to stay there. It goes back to being a little boy when you're dirty and haven't showered for two or three days and you're like, man, this is great. (laughs) This is awesome. You just want to stay dirty. But you know what the reality is? You just get in a rut. Muck and mire of life and you just feel like you know what this is where I'm supposed to be this is where I'm comfortable being men are more I don't want to say women are not part of this I'm just speaking to my own self we're more afraid of what the light can do to us than what darkness can do to us because in darkness there's comfort I mean Satan doesn't operate under the principle I'm going to give you so much as you can handle he doesn't do that he's going to give you as much as you can be comfortable in, in being in a place of darkness in doubt, That's what he does. And so climbing out takes healing. Climbing out takes, it's hurtful. This is David saying, God, you've got to help me. You have to help me. You have to get me through this. And then he, by the way, he's got to lead. It's an African proverb I got here. It's it interesting. It says this, in weeping, a leader must still open his eyes to see the road. And I can't imagine the pain of David of thinking in the midst of my weeping, I still have to open my eyes as a leader to get my people to a place. And so he strengthened himself in the Lord as God. Now what's different here than Saul? Keep in mind, King Saul never really strengthened himself in God. In his his last years, what did he do? He looked at counsel of other people. He looked at counsel of himself. By the way, the Amalekites, the irony is, the Amalekites he's chasing are the people that Saul was told to destroy. I'm not sure if you remember that or not. Saul said, God said to Saul, well, through Samuel, get all these Amalekites out. Wipe them out. They're going to be a scourge to you. They're going to be a thorn in your side. Get rid of them now. He didn't do it. Why? Because he wanted to keep the spoil of war. And so these leftover Amalekites are now the ones that have completely wrecked the hometown of David. Verse 7. Then David said to Abathar the priest, son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord. Now, this is an interesting question. Mitch, if they came in and took your family, you'd probably just jump out on a horse, or on a camel, and book it. and go. Well, you're going to find your family. Right? And so I'm thinking, why go through the prayer? But he does. Watch this. He says, um, David inquired, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? Part of me is thinking, What? What do you think? What's the other option? Look at your 600 men. Well, this really stinks, doesn't it? You know, We're just all together and we've lost everything we have. No. Shall I overtake them? Shall I pursue him? God answers him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him. They came to the brook Besar. Where those who were left behind stayed, but David pursued, he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind and were too exhausted to cross the brook of Besor. Now, what's happening here? The brook of Besor is an area that would divide one land to another. 600 men get there, 200 men cannot go any further. Now, I'm not trying to conjecture, but I'm trying to open our minds to the reality of this. These men have been riding at an incredible pace. Of their mounts are more than likely they're exasperated. They're they're grabbing water. Two hundred of these men cannot even keep up. Now, keep in mind, if you were to grab a collection of us in here to go at war, no matter what our loyalty is, no matter what our love for, no matter our ability to to throw a spear or do whatever, there's going to come some physical... There's only some of us. I'm just telling you, I'm probably one of the guys who's sticking back with the luggage here, you know? I mean, you're thinking one-third of the army's going... (sighs) can't do it you guys go you 400 you go David looks at this as an opportunity to lighten all the load they take all the saddle mounts off they throw all their luggage down with these 200 men and they say you make a stand here you stay here 400 of you of the fittest we're going to ride as fast as we can and they take off but again why did David call the priest over why did he call him over we need to pray Priest comes over with the ephod had the two stones that you know um, that we don't hear about much, really. What if they would roll them like dice or whatever? But you know, at this time the priest is praying and God just spoke. David is praying because he has seen what it's like to go into battle without God, and it's just, it's an absolute disaster. He is saying, God, for everything I need in you, you need to show up. I can't track these people. Oh, the Amalekites? If you're, if you're a raider like an Amalekite, you could hide your trail very easily. You couldn't, you couldn't see where the camels had gone because the winds, the constant winds, the sand, and they, they, they wouldn't know where he's going. And so, it brings me to a point. This story is being read, when it was first written, it had been written to a people in exile. These are, these are people that are reading this. These are Jews who are not in Israel. And they're reading it. And they're reading it. And there's a hero. There's a central hero in all the scripture. And it's not David. It's God. There is a mighty warrior that they're focusing on. And that mighty warrior is God. And what they're saying is this. But God is going to do something. Do you remember about two months ago, we're walking through Samuel? I forgot where it is. I should have looked it up before I got up here. There was a part where... And it kind of hit me in an earlier service when I was preaching. There was, a, there was there two words, but God. We didn't know what to do, but God did this, but God opened up this. I, in, the reality is, if you step back and think, but God is orchestrating everything that's about to happen. Why? Look at verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the open country, and they brought him to David. And they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink. They gave him a piece of cake, of figs, two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, My master left me high because I fell sick three days ago. Now, this is interesting. Don't think for a second this Egyptian knows who David is. This Egyptian that they've just found has no way of knowing who David is. He has absolutely no way. There is no imagery that we have now to be, oh, I recognize that person. I know that person. First of all, There's no imagery uh, recognition system. There's secondly, no cultural identification. This man is an Egyptian. He would not have known of any Israelite. Plus, he's a slave. There would have been no discussion, no talk. He's probably never heard of David, which is why he's about to give the answer he's about to give in total ignorance. Watch this answer um, in... in verse 14, the Egyptian says, We made a raid against the ne- Negev of the Cherithites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. Now, by the way, if you knew who that was, you would not be telling them we burned Ziklag with fire. You'd have probably said, And my evil master and all his cohorts burned Ziklag. But he goes, No, what? We burned it. He has no clue who he's talking to. And David said, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me, my God, that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. By the way, that has got to be one evil, cruel master. Notice what he, said. he did not say. He did not say, oh, whatever you do. Don't leave me out here to die. No, he says, do not take me back to my master. This is how evil of a master. Think about how cheap his life was anyway. He just throws him out of the wagon like, you're sick, get out of here and die. There's no attachment to the man. This man has no attachment to his master. Verse 16. And we had taken him down, behold, they were spread all over the land. The Malachites were eating and drinking and dancing because all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. Stop right here. That is a long battle. This is a long one. This is one where you are going to... You are you're waging battle in every particular way. You're not... This is an incredibly hard battle. You're not only fighting an opponent... Who, by the way, they took advantage of him when they were inebriated, they were dancing, they were hanging out. But he comes in, and James, he, it'd be like you and I being in a battle, but the whole time you're wondering where Kelly is. You're wondering where is your wife, where is your family, where is that agony and that that pressure of well, not only looking at an opponent, but wondering what are they doing. And so for this entire time, this great battle breaks out. 400 Amalekites jump on camels. Camels are incredibly fast. Donkeys, mounts, half-bred horses are not going to catch up with them. And these 400 men take off. If you had a battle that long and you still had 400 men leave and you attacked with 400, you were attacking probably thousands of men. When these 400 men came down, they had everything to lose. They were coming down absolutely bent on killing any Amalekite that they saw. You know, it's one thing if you're fighting for property. It's another thing if you're fighting for everything you love. And any anytime you look historically, when you see an outnumbered army, they always do incredibly well. Why? Because when their back is against the wall, they will do all that they can. Verse 18. David recovered all the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives. Okay, the music's crescendoing, right? The end of the story. This western is about to end. Verse 19, nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoiler, anything that had been taken. David brought back everything. Verse 20, David had also captured all the flocks and the herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Scripted out the end the way they used to do movies, and this is it. This is where, if we're writing scripture and making it up, this is where we would stop and go, all right, we've got closure. Let's move on to the next great story and talk about the greatness of David. But it doesn't end there. It picks up in a picture of selfishness that can creep in anywhere. And if it can creep into these men, these loyal men, it can creep in to us. Verse 21. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David. And who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David. And to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Ready for verse 22? This is not a description we've seen before. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone out with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we've recovered. Except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. Talk about selfish! Oh, by yeah, you can have your wife and your kids, but nothing else. Go. The, the, we're talking. We're not talking weeks, months. We're talking a short period of time. These two hundred men were left. Four hundred of their brothers go into battle. They hit the battle. They come back, and they're like, "No, you're not getting anything." Did you notice it was called called David's spoil? Did you catch that? Isn't that interesting? It was not done selfishly. He's not saying, this is my treasure. The word spoil, especially written in the context of the language it was written in, is completely different than the word treasure. Treasure would mean you find treasure. Right? You find treasure. You may share it with Amy if you tell her about it. I don't know. But you got, you have treasure. Like, this is it. But there's spoil is a different thing. Spoil is the conquest, the conquer of, of, of war. It was very common for that warring, victorious party to take all the spoil and distribute it. So when it was called David's spoil, it means this. It's David's right to distribute. Spoil has every bit of the word distribute into the the meaning of the word. And so everybody with me on that? So it's David's spoil. Well, these men are saying, oh, these 200 men aren't getting anything. There's a disdain. Disdain. You know, you you read about World War II veterans and they they, they talk about their stories. If they were out for two weeks or a month, it would be eternity if they were away from their men if they were wounded. They would talk about going back to their unit and the unit not even understanding and knowing who they were. Keep in mind, they trained for two years. They they landed on D-Day. They did whatever. But the moment they were disengaged and tried to get back, they were almost like a foreigner. Because who knows what they had seen in those two weeks or a month. In this case... These 200 men were forgotten in such a short time. We're talking days here. Forgotten. And David looks at him and he says, no, 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 what are you talking about? Everybody's going to get something. Everybody's going to get, he says, verse 23, David said, you shall not do so. My brothers, with what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Now, David gets it. David prayed for this. And David knows what it means to celebrate with this. And it means to share with this. This is what it means to be selfish. If we're not careful, you and I can be selfish and prideful. We can be very prideful about things. If you are not careful, you can be prideful about good things. There's good pride and there's bad pride. It's okay to be proud of our church. But never be proud of your church at the expense of another church. Never say we do this and never did this before at another But And that's, that's the wrong. That's wrong. That's selfishness. Remember, we're one church. We celebrate in the greatness of other churches that are following Christ. Why? Because we are the part of God's spoil. Can you imagine if we simply said, this is how we do things, this is, this is what we do well, we're constantly pr- promoting ourselves? God will take his hand off our church and the fellowship very quickly. And so that means that we have to walk carefully, not only corporately, but we walk individually. We walk into a church and say, God, what would you have me do? As opposed to, what do I want in this church? Here's a, I don't know where I read this. It's a make-believe story, whatever, but it was cute. It was uh, two old ladies in a church. One of them was a choir director. and One of them was her best friend. They'd grown up together their whole life. They go to lunch, and the woman looks at her best friend, who was a choir director, and she says, I didn't like the music today didn't like it at all. She folds her arms. she said, I didn't didn't know the songs. And then I just didn't like it. Choir director looks at her and said, that's okay. We weren't singing to you anyway. (laughs) And I think that's the reality of like, if we're not careful, we walk in here saying, I want my spoil. I don't care what this person gets. I don't care if somebody walks in here and may need that song. I don't care what maybe what, no, I want mine. And so If we're not careful, we can be just like these folks. Saying, I just want everything that's deserved me. I want everything that I'm supposed to be comfortable with here. You know, seriously folks, you ever, they mostly come to the 9 o'clock service, but the folks who used to go to Acacia Grove that used to meet here... Let me tell you you hug their neck when you see them to understand these were people who gave spoil to us who had a piece of land and had a building and had resources and were able to say we want to share it with others there are churches all around this town that are dying of 12 and 14 people left and they are sitting on 10 acres of land who won't even help another church I talked to a pastor last night at the Indian fellowship the um Worship leaders, husband, and she—he was telling me that they went four months without a church building, four months, and it took an impact on them. And there are people, there are churches, even churches we approached before we started to embark on building, and we're like, "Can you? You know, there's only ten of you left, and you seat three hundred and something. That would help us for even for a year till we build the church." To no, no. That's people keeping their spoil. And that's why I hope you know. I hope our building gets wore out in ministry. There's times I will I, look, I go to my house and I look. You know, homes I think oh, 2015. It's gonna be five years old this October. That sucker looks 15 years old. Yeah. There's scratches, dents, dings. Half the appliances aren't working anymore because they've been used so much. And you know what? It's beautiful. Is that's what. What am I going to have? God give me that, and then I say it's my spoil. No, we got to be careful. We're not any different than these guys. What I leave off, verse twenty-four. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into battle, so shall his share be who stayed by the luggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David became or came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, "Here is a present for you from the spoils of the enemies of the Lord." I tell you what I've learned is this: spoils of war can spoil lives. So when I was a college pastor for a long time and I have people, former students are, they're now cranking in their four, early 40s, they're hitting 40 I'm loving every bit of watching them go through the agony you know and I'm like yeah and I just yeah, I remember they're, they're, they're coming in and, and, uh, at, at that age and, but a lot of them are different, some of them are the same some of them deep down are still the same kid they were 20 or whatever but there are some that I remember had more debt, they, they didn't have two pennies rubbed together, I mean they had nothing like, how are you doing in your checking account? What's that? A savings account. Are you kidding? I'm um, 65000 in debt. Now, what are they doing? They are living it up. Big home, big cars, nice cars, nice everything. And you sit down and you can tell there's something different about them. Like, I mean, Ron Sandy, y'all remember some of our folks, you've seen some go that route of materialism. And what happens? They, they're, the spoil changed their lives. Changed who they were. They became different people. And so I, I look at him now and I'm like, don't, you know, you're not as much fun. I mean, we used to just crack up and laugh to the point of we were in tears. And now it's just kind of like a corporate talk. And, well, you see, Jake, you see this is why we, and I'm like, who are you? <laughs> like, where is it? But the spoils of war, the spoils of life, spoil the person, you know, I like to go on cruises, obviously, right? I like to go with family and get the time. Seven days of no decisions. Chicken or steak? Yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> and I go on there and there's a... Uh, there's always a cruise director every time who ends it with a sweet utopian description of the cruise. You all know that we have... 2,100 and something crewmen of 79 countries and we all get along. All of us are family, one family. Don't you know that the world would wish to be like we are? I'm thinking in the back of my head. Yeah, just stop their paychecks for about three weeks on that ship and see how utopia goes for you. <laughs> just watch what happens when, or start paying a room steward more than this room steward and let them know. You are going want to see something break out. That's who we are. The spoils, what's deserved, what's earned even we start to use that but here's where david's coming in david is saying no 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 wait a minute and by the way there's some other verses just after this where david gives some more of the spoils away who does he give these spoils away to people that took him in people who defended him people who gave him food people who housed him and then he also gave some food to some other people he was doing that as an act of gratefulness but i think in a way he was also saying this and i really do and keep in mind it starts ramping up this uh, next week and the next week you're going to see david is saying i'm back future king of Israel is back and I'm giving you stuff where your other king didn't and so David recognizes if it were not for those two words but God we would have nothing but if it wasn't for God um, moving in the hearts of these Philistines and using non-believers to make a decision to go we don't want these Jews in in our war column to go against Judah guess what? he wouldn't have made his way to Ziklag. If it was but for God, the Amalekites didn't kill one family member, not one. If that wasn't enough, but God drops an Egyptian slave off of a wagon who's nearly starved to death, and but God uh, gave the ability for 200 men to stay behind, leave the baggage there in order to make the 400 men a faster raiding party. But God took an overwhelmingly large army and was decimated by the ranks of 400 surviving men. And If it weren't for but God, not one person was harmed. And thanks to God, all these riches were given. Now how does that mean when this scripture is told to us? We know it's read to people in exile, the mighty warrior is God. That's who we remember. But it's also, are you ready for this? for you and I. The the hero in this is not David. It's the same one given to the Jews it was read to. There's a mighty warrior and he's yours. This has as much to do with you and I today as it has to do with the Jews at the time reading it and hearing it for the first time. What do I mean by that? Everything that has ever taken you under, everything that has ever discouraged you, everything that has ever caused you to weep and to find fear has been conquered. Everything. Everything. Debt, death, disease, distress, all of it. Because of one warrior. When you and I could not fix our sin, Christ goes on a cross, dies, and ascends three days later, to conquer death for guess who? You. If you've fallen asleep, wake up now because this is worth coming. Here it is. You have a mighty warrior that has brought you a spoil that I don't think you and I can grasp. What do I mean by that? Ephesians 1 17-19 reads this way. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. How about if I say it like this? Having your eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, that the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what you have in the immeasurable greatness of his power towards you who believe. According to the working of his great might. Watch the next um, set of verses. Ephesians three, fourteen. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints that is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know here it is, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is for us, that is for you and I. When we were doomed in sin when we were wrecked in a place of condemnation guess what happened but god but god brought down a savior for us and when you're stuck in a way and i'm talking like i'm not talking corporately i'm not talking as a church now i'm not talking about how we can shed that but i'm talking about when you go to family that you know do not believe i'm talking you walk to family or friends or coworkers that pretty much call you the pope because you're the religious person right I'm talking about those people you go to. The ones that say, oh yeah, I get to get the prayer over over the food. Go ahead and get it out of the way. I'm talking that group. The group you dearly love. Or you're dearly stuck with. Either way, they're yours. That group, you walk into that group, and there's logical steps you can take. We teach these things. Lower your expectations. We talk around Thanksgiving, Christmas, things like that. Lower your expectations. Who they are. Come in as a being of light. And basically, if we're not careful, we're just saying, tolerate them and get the heck out of there. right? And that's what we really are implying. But what if you scripturally walked in? Understanding you have been given a spoil of war. You have been given a spoil that you cannot fathom, that you cannot picture. This is one of those conversations where you walk in and realize God has given you the ability to say things you never thought possible. Any of you ever had that happen? You start to sit down with someone and all of a sudden these words just, I mean, they're flying out. And you're thinking, where is this coming from? What is going on? Who is this? This is like these are my words. That is what the Holy Spirit does. It's so when it says, "God says this." I, you're going to go in according to your riches, which means you're walking in. Get this: You and I have been compared to brothers and sisters of Jesus. Right? That is how He views us. He doesn't. He's, Jesus isn't even even looking at it, going, "Well, you know, you're my sanctified children." He is saying, "You, Dina, are my sister." You know, you are family. And so, what I'm saying to you is this I want you to go in understanding you have immeasurable love. Now, go in according to my power. You've got my bank account. Imagine. So, if I equip you with all the money to change things, all the money. And I look over you and I say, Barbara, I want you to go, I want you to take this, I've got a billion dollars. I want you to go bless this charity. I want you to walk in and I want you to walk right to the people and I want you to help them out. And you sit down and you're represented a billion dollars. If you give a thousand dollars, you're giving out of the riches. But if you look around and say telling you, we are here to help. We're here to own this problem. We're going to fix it. You give a million bucks, you guess what you're doing? You're giving according to the riches. And so what happens when we walk in with minimalistic standards and expectations? You know what we think? Gosh, I hope my family just tolerates me. I really hope they see things that are just kind of okay. I hope they see a, the light in who I am. If we're not careful, we start fortune cooking things and I'm not trying to knock and I'm trying to make a, a general statement but there are times when I think we could walk in and change things if we're not careful we walk out and go well I planted a seed you know planting a seed is a good thing and that's what we do the majority of our time because we're not always the ones who reap the harvest but be careful you're not just throwing seeds your entire life occasionally The Holy Spirit is going to prompt on you in the midst of a moment that's your arena, your church, your people, you're the minister, you're the godliest one they know. And then you're going to tap in, I pray, according to the riches that God has given you. One more verse. Ephesians 4 7 and 8. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He has given each one of you a gift. And if you have found an arena of complacency, if you've found an arena of minimalistic expectations, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here to hear something. You have been given a spoil to share and it's huge. It's gigantic. Who knows? Who would have ever thought when I looked around and I see I see some of you here that I've known for a long time and I've watched your journey and now I just look up to you spiritually. Each one of you. I'm talking to the introvert. I'm talking to the one who says I'll never get up here and share my testimony. I'm never going to ask a question out loud. I'm, I'm talking to you. God has a gift for you, He has a design for you, He has a role for you, and He's not sending you in on a budget. He has a mission and a purpose and a will for you, and He has riches beyond your imagination of wisdom and understanding used through you? Who knows what God has in store for you? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for today.